Hello and welcome to a new episode of Quality Sense Podcast, a place to learn and listen about all things related to software testing. Today we present you with a guest that was highly recommended by a good friend from the testing community, and he wasn't wrong, Andrew Knight, also known as Automation Panda. He describes himself as a software enthusiast with a specialty in testing, in test automation and behavior-driven development. In this episode, we will talk about doing test automation at scale. Because as you will see when you are planning not just to automate uh, a few test cases, there are many things to consider uh, related to the environments, related to how to keep up with the changes of the system, how to maintain the quality of your test suite and so many other things. If this is something that sounds interesting for you, then keep listening and enjoy the episode. I'd like to thank my team, Abstracta, for sponsoring and helping me to create this podcast. Abstracta is a company fully dedicated to software testing that can work with you to push the quality of your products and processes to the next level. Hello, Andrew. How are you doing today? Doing great. How about you, Fede? I'm fine. Thank you. And I'm really happy to have the opportunity to have this conversation with you and learn about your experience. The first question I would like to ask you is to, you know, to learn a little bit more about you. Uh, please introduce yourself. Tell me how you ended up working in software testing and what are sure. you doing today? Sure. Sounds good. So I'm the Automation Panda, Andy Knight. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Automation Panda. And like you said, I am a software enthusiast, you could say, with a specialty in testing automation and behavior-driven development. Right now, I'm a developer advocate at Apple Tools, where I show people all the awesome ways they can do testing and help them learn better things, and also um, do that on behalf of the company. So learn from the community and take that back into Apple Tools to help them make better stuff. <laughs> I've been doing this for um, over a decade. Um, I gosh, how did I get into software testing? When I graduated college, or I should back up. When I was in high school, I discovered programming and I knew I wanted to get into software development somehow. So I graduated high school, went to RIT, got degrees in computer science and coming out of college, all they do is tr turn you out to be a developer, right? They don't, they don't have any sort of nuances to what kind of career path you could take. Either you're a developer or a professor, right? So I just, I landed in the industry and, um, I ended up just picking up uh, testing oriented type responsibilities. Um, in my first internship with IBM, my first summer there, I was doing software testing. I was doing automation before it was cool. Then later in 2011, when I joined NetApp, I joined a QA team where my whole job role was test automation and that kind of sealed the deal. So I've been doing that ever since. Um, for the first, roughly the first decade, I was an um, individual contributor engineer, you know, in the trenches, doing the testing, doing the automation. Uh, it was only last November that I joined Apple Tools and became a developer advocate, which is a slightly different kind of role, but still in the same space. It's amazing how uh, your first experience uh, marked a lot on, on your career, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
yesterday, yesterday I was reading a, a, an article you shared that you wrote uh, some time ago uh, related how to mentor uh, testers. Right? It's a very good one. Oh, thank you. Uh, and, and also it's uh, really important because this is something that we typically do in our team. And, and uh, I, I found many perspectives very interesting, um, especially, you know, those typical engineering, software engineering techniques or, or practices that we, that I believe most developers do. But when we do testing, maybe I, I've seen that not, all the people take those into account, mm. like code, mm. code reviews or mm -hmm. using uh, some even static code analysis uh, using SonarQ or something like this in order mm -hmm. to learn and continue learning uh, and improving your coding skills. Because if you are doing test automation, you are coding and you exactly. have to be good at it, right? Mm -hmm. and how you presented different ideas to mentor and to coach and, and help others to, to grow in test automation. I, I think it's fantastic. Great. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I, when, like way back when, when I was starting, you know, at IBM and then later at NetApp, we didn't have resources for teaching you how to do testing. We didn't have Test Automation University. I mean, there, there I think at that time there were, you know, there was a small community and people were starting to give conference talks and all, but it wasn't like a big thing like it is now. And so I didn't really have a mentor in automation. What I had was a broken hand-me-down project and I had to learn it all the hard way. And that was painful. And I don't want anyone to have to suffer through that again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Andy, um, the, um, the main topic we wanted to discuss today, it's related um, doing test automation, but in big frameworks. It's not mm. only the, the starting the first couple of test cases that you want to automate, but what happens mm -hmm. when you need to scale that solution? So mm -hmm. maybe to start talking about it, uh, what do you think are the main differences of doing test automation at the scale? Mm, that's a great question. Um, One of the hardest challenges at doing test automation at scale is keeping tests running reliably, that maintenance burden. Because we all know test automation can be rather fragile, right? There's lots of race conditions. There's lots of opportunities for things to break either because a locator wasn't that great or the product underneath changed or, yeah, there was just some inappropriate waiting condition that hit an edge case. And the more... The more tests you have, the greater chances that something is going to go boom. Yeah. And while teams, I've seen teams be successful small scale, like up to 100 tests, you know, they can, they can maintain those, oh, if something breaks, it's not a big deal. But when you have 1,000 tests, you know, 5,000 tests, or you're running literally continuously around the clock in these high-scale environments, failures start popping out left and right, and teams don't know how to keep up with that. And as soon as that happens, then everybody devalues the test automation. They're like, well, this is just noise. This isn't helping. This isn't protecting anything. And so it becomes defeating, right? <laughs> the whole point of having those tests there to be a layer of protection, they get ignored or even worse, people bypass them or ignore tests or remove them or even argue, why are we investing so much time and effort in this? We should stop. Yeah. That, that maintenance nightmare to keep up. That's why if you're going to be doing high-scale test automation, you really, really need to 
double down on those good development practices, like you mentioned, like doing code reviews for every single um, change that goes into a, um, a test code repository, or things like static code analysis, things like following design patterns. Yeah. Um, all those sorts of aspects help a team congeal around good practice. And that keeps the tests maintainable and reliable. Yesterday, I was talking with one of the leaders. We are trying to fix some automation they are working, they, they were working on. And the, the challenge they have now is that many test cases were designed in a way that if something fails, Mm-hmm. And you want to see what, what was happening or try to, you know, review if it's uh, a flaky test or if mm-hmm. there is really a bug. The test case takes so long because it's a very large mm-hmm. end-to-end mm-hmm. flow. So mm-hmm. the whole test suite is built like that. So uh, it's really hard to, you know, to distinguish what is information and what is just uh, noise, as as you said. So, and that's related to a bad uh, design decision, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, maybe yeah. when you have a couple of test cases, you you can manage to to mm-hmm. you can afford the the time the extra time you have to spend in order to review those test cases. Mm-hmm. But there is a an inflection point, I would say, where when that problem becomes becomes like impossible to to keep up with it, right? Mm-hmm. You, you will spend more time analyzing problems mm-hmm. than. Yeah. Uh, taking advantage of the of the information you are you have right yeah yeah no what what you said touches on something that i've seen so many times and it's so painful um, and it's it's a misunderstanding of the type of test case that is appropriate for automation right when when we go back in time when we we look at uh, when when there was no automation when everything had to be tested manually right and there would be teams and even organizations of manual testers just beating up on large applications Right? I'm, I'm not talking about tiny things. I'm talking about big things, right? Um, where you would have these large test phases, you would have t- test leads and managers go in and schedule a subset of tests that the team would run manually for a week, right? In, in that world, it made sense to have long, big end-to-end test cases that covered multiple behaviors as what I call a grand tour. Because... When you're manually testing, manually testing is inherently slow. It's, you know, one person can do only one thing at a time. Um, and so it, it was advantageous for a manual tester to hit as many things on their way as they navigate through the app as they could, because that was the most efficient use of their time. And so you ended up with very long test cases. I remember looking in things like uh, Quality Center or application lifecycle manual, whatever those tools were, you know, these big test case repositories and seeing test cases being like 57 steps long or like 118 steps long. And when I get assigned these back in the day, I was like, dang, oh, this is painful. I don't want this. Here we go. (laughs) Right. But, but when when teams started moving to automation, like the first wave was this, this idea of let's just take our manual tests and convert them to automated tests with no thought of what, what makes an appropriate type of test for automation. So they took that 57 line long test case procedure and like, let's just automate all the steps. And so then now you have teams who have literally paid or these organizations that have paid teams worth of automation engineers to do this for years, 
without thinking. And now they're stuck with these horribly long test cases that they, they fail in step 17. Oh, the whole test case blew up. Well, what, what behavior was it? I don't know. It was in there somewhere, right? They didn't think to break apart individual behaviors, to have shorter atomic tests that when that fails, it's one behavior. And based on the name of that test, you know exactly what the bug is, yeah. right? So yeah. that, I feel that pain. I feel that pain. I, I never thought about that. Why, why this, is, mm -hmm. this is happening? Because you're right. It's like, when you are doing manual testing, it's like you are evolving, you are working with some context of the application and probably the most efficient way to, to do it is like to continue working on the same context. But in automation, you can skip all the steps just with an API API call and uh, and that's more much more efficient. Yeah, right. Yep, yep. Once you can start to identify individual behaviors, break apart, you know, like you said, jump in, hey, Instead of, you know, going to a form and uploading data and a web page, hit the API, right? Boom, it's there. And then you can have that nice isolated yeah. thing, test that individually. And technically, it's still end-to-end -end because you're hitting the whole stack, right? You need the full application running and deployed. That's what end-to-end -end means to me. Not that you take 57 steps through this gigantic workflow. It's not end-to-end -end from the beginning of the journey to the end of the journey. Is end to end mm -hmm. considering the 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 second step. step exactly? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's my view. Yeah, perfect. So, uh, and the another question: uh, Is there any particularity uh, regarding the organization of the team? Hmm, that's a great question too, man. So, <laughs> I personally don't have preference to how teams are structured. Uh, whatever works works. I. What I've seen is the pendulum swing between we have separated QA or testing as a specific role with people dedicated in that that are you know mm -hmm. siloed and they they do the stuff to pendulum swing in the other way where it's we don't even have testers developers just pick up testing responsibilities and it's all purely agile cross functional and stuff. Um, what I can say are pros and cons I've seen of each. Um, and so, like, again, there's, there's no right answer. It's just a matter of pick your poison. So when, when you have that separation of, of role and of team structure between like a developer and a tester, that's what they do. Um, the challenges I see with that are that cross-team communication can be a little difficult, right? Because if they're even reporting to different managers, it's going to kind of go up and over and down sometimes. And so things can fall out of step. Um, It can also foster a bit of an us versus them mentality, which, which is unhealthy. Um, it can also foster this, this feeling, especially from the developer side of saying, well, the testers are going to take care of it. Therefore, I don't need to be concerned about that, right? I'm just going to crunch down in code and not worry about, you know, any checking my things or being as careful. It'll just go through QA and that's, that'll catch it for me. It's like, no. So those are some of the issues there. The advantages though, are that um, uh, you get that, that, optimization within specialization, right? Because you're going to have people who know how to develop tests, whether for manual testing, whether to go off and be exploratory or whether to build a test automation system, which those skills, most developers don't have out of the box <laughs> unless they've been in that type of role or situation before. You know, um, I mean, most developers could probably pull down a framework like Cypress or something and start throwing some tests in there. But I mean, could, could they engineer a, a high scale test automation system of 2,000 different tests running five to 10,000 iterations on a daily basis at 50 to 100 times parallel scale? Maybe not. Maybe they could get there, but 
out of the box, that's not, that's not what they're setting themselves up to do, if that makes sense. So those are the pros and cons that way. Um, with a fully integrated team where it's, there are no dedicated roles, um, you know, the developer does everything. Um, there, the advantage in that is that developers have to be more mindful. And so they have to pick up these things and learn them. And that's very much a shift left thing. So problems get resolved a little earlier. But again, they may, they may lack that um, type of uh, fine touch specialized skill. And you, you could end up getting into a place where you have blind leading the blind, right? Or they might max out at, at a certain level before things start falling apart. <laughs> Pros and cons. <laughs> yeah, of course. But um, is there anything particular to the way you distribute responsibilities within a, mm -hmm. let's imagine we are talking about okay. this automation team, mm -hmm. like different people responsible of uh, implementing the, the test scripts. Mm, okay, okay. There are definitely different kinds of, of tasks to be done, different kinds of work items. Um, the, for me, the main split comes down to Is somebody going to be automating a test case or are they going to be working on something at a solution or framework level, right? If it's, and I would divvy those up based on <laughs> where, what are people already working on? What are their, what are their interests? What are their skills? Um, like, for example, if, if there's this new feature coming up and somebody's already been like heads down working in that area, it's like, okay, you're going to get the, the test to automate for that when the time comes, right? Um, whereas like if I found like, for example, myself being more of a, um, in the more of the builder and the leader kind of position on these kinds of teams, I'm typically the one who's doing those cross-cutting concerns of, Hey, we need to improve logging in our framework. <laughs> right. Okay. Let me go in there and yeah. tear things apart. <laughs> you know, those would be the, the, the two kinds of coding tasks I would see kind of separate. Yeah, because I, I've seen teams working in two different ways, I would say. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, you have those who have a test automation backlog. So, oh, okay. You know, and then you have the others who are more embedded into the team and they participate. They, they are more like mm. a, a tester that also maybe they also are involved with manual tests testing task mm -hmm. and I'm doing quotes for manual, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. you know, but, um, and they also automate, but they are involved in the, even in the design of the features, right? But yeah, yeah. Really different than you have a, a separate team, but their focus mm -hmm. is like, okay, we need to automate this for the regression, for the small test or something. Yeah, like that. yeah. And here is the backlog. And I, I, as a tester, as a manual tester, again, Uh, I can design and, and ask you to help me with mm -hmm. automation of these steps, right? Mm -hmm. So Yeah, you, you touch on something big there because, yeah, like um, so many, what you're describing there was what I would call in-sprint automation, where it's like you would have that, that tester role on some sort of development team, whether it's matrix in or they report or whatever, but it's like, okay, let's just presume an agile framework where every two to three or four weeks they're, doing a sprint, right? And there's a there are deliverables that come out of that sprint. And so that person on that team is responsible for the day-to-day the -day and sprint-to-sprint -sprint activities of making sure it's good. So they're, excuse me, they're, they're in the trenches, they're learning the features, they're trying to, you know, 
automate the tests or manually run the tests while that's happening versus, okay, you have some sort of team that's not embedded in that. It's more kind of separate that, oh gosh, we're already behind the eight ball. We have this huge backlog, right? This big technical debt that we're just trying to burn down to get some sort of basic regression that we can run nightly, right? Two very different ways of operating. Um, I mean, I've, I've been at it where it's like both, where it's like, you know, okay, in my previous company, we had both, right? It was giant backlog from years of not having automation that most of our team's effort was trying to, to chew down. But then we would have you know, someone on our team, okay, you're going to go on this front end team and you're going to sit there and listen. And when it's appropriate, you're going to chime in, you're going to suggest we should automate this, that, and you're going to be there. So you can work both. But you're right, it's two very different modes of operation. Um, probably in a situation where you decide to start automating and, and you have a previous uh, a system with a history of different mm -hmm. features, right? Maybe you need mm -hmm. both yes. to, to get involved in the new features or changes and also try to automate the, the, the regression of the existing ones. Correct, indeed. Quality Sense podcast, where you will have the chance to improve your sense for quality by listening to some leaders who are amazing at what they do in the software industry. Uh, what about um, test environments? Any particularity when we are talking about doing automation at the scale? Yes, yes. So the dream, <laughs> the dream, if, if you can achieve it, would be that you run your tests in independent, isolated environments, right? That you don't have any other, you know, fingers in the pie. <laughs> you don't have any interruptions coming in. Um, and this, the, 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 I think the easiest way to achieve that is if you have your application containerized, Because you can just take the container from the most recent build, throw it out there, you know, throw it on your Kubernetes cluster or whatever, wherever you want to run it, whatever cloud service. And that's the other thing, cloud service, wonderful. Put it out there on whatever cloud service, um, deploys very quickly, and then you just target your tests against that. And so when you want to run your tests, you grab the container, you deploy it, you wait a minute or two, you, you hit your barrage of test suites against it. Um, you get the results. You look at the results. If everything's good, you just tear down, clean up, no big loss. Um, if there are failures, you can freeze it <laughs> and then go and poke in and investigate. And when you're done, okay, then you can destroy it. That is the ideal. Um, unfortunately, many of us don't live in a perfect world where we don't have our app containerized. Um, some of us also live in a world where it is far beyond the capability of the team to ju just go containerize the app. And it's not because of any deficiency of developers or testers. It's sometimes that's just the way things are. It could be bureaucratic. It could be historic. It could be whatever reason. So if you can't get the containerized version of the app where you can have those spin up those independent environments and such, um, you're probably going to be stuck in some sort of shared environment system. And th this is pretty common. I would say this is probably more common than the other case, especially the larger the application you're testing. Yeah. Right. Because, you know, if you're having, if you need a test suite of thousands of tests and end tests, you're probably not testing an application that fits in one container. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Ooh. Right. It's probably multiple things, you know, huge front end and 
you know, multiple databases and caching and services out the wazoo, right? And it's this big whole thing. So in that case, what, what you're stuck with are some sort of shared environments. You still need to have some sort of sense of isolation, right? If that means like, okay, there's a development environment and a staging environment and a production environment, maybe you want to come in and set up a test environment. It's basically a clone of debt, right? To say, okay, we, every time that a change goes into the, or a, change, a code change is committed and it kicks off CI, not only want to develop, or not only are we going to deploy internally here, we're also going to deploy internally to this test environment. And that's going to kick off our end-to-end -end tests around the clock, right? So that way, you know, developers can still go muck around on their environment. Um, staging is still somewhat preserved, um, but you know, the, the tests are still running continuously in a non-interruptible way, right? Um, restricting access to who would have um, access to that environment. So that, again, nobody comes and mucks it up. Um, Cause yeah, like I, that, that's a big frustration where it's like somebody comes in and tweaks a setting all of a sudden all of your tests blow up because they were expecting A here instead of B, right? Yeah, but not, not only a configuration, also the test data, because even in the yeah. ideal world that you were mentioning, are, are you talking about using mocks for the database? Or, oh, yeah, or that's a, 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 a database okay. that maybe is mutating as oh, you gosh. run mm -hmm, the test, mm -hmm. right? Because it, this is a... Very oh, common challenge, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. <laughs> absolutely. Yep, yep. So, uh, honestly, for end-to-end -end tests, I don't like mocking data. Mm -hmm. When I say mocking data, putting in like a fake service in there, just having dummy data spit out. Um, I like having data inside of a database that is actually being used because it's more real. Um, whether that data is meaningful in any sense or not, eh, right? If you if you have a tool to generate that just pukes out you know, fakely generated data, but it's in the right structure. Okay, good enough, yeah. right? Um, another way you could do that is um, kind of siphon data from production and scrub it and sanitize it and all that. That's another way. Um, but in terms of, yeah, you're right. Because anytime you have like uh, isolated environments, it's like you kind of have cloned data and it's like, okay, whatever happens there doesn't matter, right? But when you have shared data, right? Now you have issues of things like, well, if you, if you run your tests in parallel, right? They could collide on that shared data. You could have a collision. You know, I mean, okay, like I, I my previous company was banking. So it's like, okay, you create an application or you, you create an opportunity of like somebody, an opportunity meaning like a loan application, right? You create an opportunity. One test creates it, another test comes and deletes it. Ooh, that's not good, <laughs> you know? So the, what you need to do at a, and if, if that's the case, what I find is at the test design level, you need to make sure that you're avoiding data collisions such that, you know, it, you know, every test would create the opportunities that it uses so that no other test would come in and wipe that out. Yeah. Right. Or if you absolutely have to have a situation where um, you're modifying shared data in a way that would affect other tests, those tests cannot run in parallel, right? They have to be separated. And then you, you raise the question of testing risk. Is it worth it? Right. <laughs> to maintain that separately. Uh, maybe not. Maybe we call that a testing risk and we keep moving on and we have too much value to chase. Let's chase this value instead of that value because this is easy and this is hard and they deliver the same level of value, right? You start making those trade-off decisions. Um, yeah, maybe yeah, test data is a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe analyzing how how stable are them mm -hmm. uh, if, they, if there is a real problem. Because in, in some cases we have faced like 
you know, we run the same suite in, um, in the test environment mm-hmm. with the test data that we generated. Okay, so mm-hmm. we have more or less control on the test data that we are going to find. But mm-hmm. then we run the test, we used to run the same test suite against the staging environment mm-hmm. where they cloned, cloned mm-hmm. the, the, the production database from the day before. Oh, <laughs> so we didn't know what information is going to be there exactly. Mm-hmm. So we prepare some SQLs to gather the, the data to oh. fill the test cases before okay. the test cases started to run, right? Mm-hmm. But again, uh, if I need some opportunity in certain states, mm-hmm. maybe yesterday I didn't have any new opportunity in that particular state where I want to mm-hmm. test something, right? Yep. So there are, there are a lot of things related to the test design also yep. that we have to take into account how mm-hmm the data is going to be used, how that can mm-hmm. have an impact on other test cases. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. uh, it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Another strategy that I've used that was helpful, um, because you, you touched on the, do I pre-populate the database with explicit data that is in a format I know and the tests are, are hard-coded to expect that type of thing, like by record name or by ID? Or do you just peek inside the database and do a search to find one that matches your criteria? Exactly. And that's what I would call discovery. Um, we we had that issue because between different environments, it's like it, it's filled with certain records that actually, based on the design of the app, we as the users could not go in and modify. It was like kind of pre-populated based on backend processes and stuff. And it's like, well, we need to test behaviors that are hinging on those types of things. We have no control of setting it ourselves, but we're just like, it's just like populated there from whatever. So we had no choice but to go in and, you know, have mechanisms that would go through the API, just like get a, get a whole blob of data and just kind of go one record one at a time. Search, does this match what I need? Does this match what I need? And when we find it, okay, now we can use this. Here's the ID for the right one, right? And you hope and pray that it's in the database to begin with, that it's not like you go through the entire record set and there's nothing that matches, right? Oof. <laughs> yeah. Things you got to do. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, you can create your data for those situations where you don't find anything, right? If you have the capability, if you have the backdoor. Of course. <laughs> yeah, you're right. So uh, moving on to some some other aspects that I consider that are important in those situations. What do you do or what, what considerations we need to, to take into account with the test results? Because we probably are talking about hundreds of tests we need mm-hmm. to summarize information, but also we need mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, to be able to um, explore all the details of a particular te- test execution, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Any suggestions there? Mm. First suggestion is know your audience because what you're going to tell your fellow teammates is going to be different than what you tell your manager is going to be different what your manager is going to tell your VP. Yeah. Right. Um, the, the the VP doesn't want to see logs. If they see logs, you're fired because you're screwing up your job. Right. Um, whereas if the the team member doesn't get logs, the results to them are useless because they can't figure out what's what's wrong. Um, the the way I like to kind of handle that or structure that is to to have reports that can go from high level to low level. Right. 
high level is like, you know, percentage passed, names of test cases that failed, and that's it. <laughs> right, done. Right. But from there, to be able to expand or to link to, okay, failing test case, here is, uh, here's like the steps of the whole test case. Here's exactly where it failed. Here are links to the screenshots, the videos, the artifacts, all that kind of stuff. Um, if you're using a cloud-based tool that let's, for example, let's say you're doing WebDriver-based tests and you're using like, you know, Sauce Labs or Lambda Test or even Apple Tools UltraFast Grid, right? Any of those things. It's like, okay, those portals and dashboards that are online, they're going to have all that nice and for you. You know, you go to the test fair, boom, and it gives you everything. If you have to DIY locally, that's something that you're going to have to develop just in the same sense that you develop your test cases, yeah. right? Depending on your framework, it could be good or bad. Um, I hate to say it, most frameworks out of the box have pretty lousy reports. Some of them are better than, for example, Specflow is actually really, really good. Um, they have their Specflow plus runner report, which I think is great. Um, and then their, their living doc report, which is really, really nice for that high level view of stuff. So, um, but yeah, I mean, you may need to add a little bit of effort to drawing out the types of things that you find are useful to your team, right? Um, whether that's, you know, embedding artifact links to things like screenshots or gathering, um, like if you're doing API requests, capturing the request and response that was made automatically, and then putting that in, let's say, a JSON file or something that you can link to from your report to see, well, why did this, why did I get a 400 request response? Boom, you know, that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah, of course, top-down is a, the approach to first having a, a general idea, but mm -hmm. also have the, the possibility to dig into the into what happened. Yep. Okay. And there is another challenge that I typically find when working with a lot of test cases, which is how how to keep control of the coverage. Because there is a moment when you have like hundreds of test cases and there is a new uh, boundary case that mm -hmm. You say, okay, we 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 will need to have a. It could be nice to to have this case automated. Do we have mm -hmm. it ready or not? Should I explore all the code? Maybe it's not well organized, so it's difficult mm -hmm. to find where exactly could it be, or you know, mm -hmm. how 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 do you manage that challenge? Gosh, yeah, that's <laughs> hard, and there is no good answer. Not that I don't know a good answer, it's that good answer does not yet exist. <laughs> okay. Um, because th this is a, a thing where um, we need to be careful to separate um, tests that cover code from tests that cover features, right? Yeah. Unit tests versus end-to-end -end tests. And if we're not careful on this, um, then our managers and superiors are going to misunderstand and there could be all sorts of problems. <laughs> you know, when, when it comes to, um, code coverage. That's easy, right? Because unit tests are white box. They directly interact with the source code. It's tests that test the source code to be, you're, you're verifying, did you write it according to how you wanted, right? And so those coverages, you 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 check the lines, you check the branches, there's tools that automatically, I think you mentioned SonarQ, right? Boom, and you're done. And you can pinpoint exactly where it is. And that then tells you exactly where to put it. Yeah. When it comes to feature testing, you know, these, these integration end-to-end -end tests, that does not exist, right? I mean, some people I've seen have tried to say, okay, well, you can like instrument your build and like then run your end-to-end -end tests and you'll see the modules that aren't covered. I call that bullshit. 
because that again is testing code, it's not testing features. Features are the behaviors that people use within an application. And so we're asking for behavior level coverage. You know, what are the things that we've covered as far as what users can and can or should or shouldn't do with our product under test? And it's very much a heuristic kind of thing. It's like yeah. you have to have somebody with that, that knowledge, that familiarity, that expertise of the product and of the test suites to be able to go in and say, oh, no, we don't have that area or to have it well organized to say, OK, well, this is the, the subfolder where we keep all of these um, automated test cases or even manually within a repository where we keep the, the test procedures for this area. Um, we don't have it there. So there's an organization sense that kind of helps you and you look, if you don't see it, you don't have it, therefore go either you choose to add it or not. Um, if I can tangent on that, that's why good test organization is very important. Um, I always recommend people organize by feature area or functionality area or behavior versus organizing by release. <laughs> you know, I've seen teams where they'll, they'll, their test project is like, this is 1.1 and this is 1.2 and this is 1.3. And I'm like, hmm. how do I, how do I look for things like, you know, the features of adding new opportunities? Well, we got some here and some here and some here. And some. No, 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 no. That's horrible. I can't, I can't search that. Right. Um, but anyway, um, an alternative approach one team could, uh, a team could take in terms of how do I know how can I judge feature coverage in terms of automation? If you take a behavior-driven approach and you are shifting left and you are um, defining your behaviors in a language like Gherkin and then going to automate them, and you're doing examples like, or examples, you're doing activities like example mapping to kind of map out what the things are, you could get a somewhat quantifiable measure of feature coverage like that. And here, here's, here's how it goes. When, when someone has a story that they wanna do, if you take that and you do example mapping on that story, what you're doing is you're taking that story, getting the rules defined, which then becomes your acceptance criteria. And you're getting the examples defined, which then become your test cases, right? By the end of, of, of example mapping, you have those as artifacts, they're defined. At that point, it's just a matter of implementation, both in terms of the feature on the developer and the test cases for automation on the tester. Your form of feature coverage could be how many of those example cards have automated test cases, Yeah. right? Okay, so in this particular, for this particular story, there were a total of, you know, 11 examples that came out and based on a risk-based strategy, we have chosen to automate seven out of those 11. So we have, gosh, I should have done 10. Let's say you had 10. <laughs> okay, let's make it easy math. Uh, it's too early for me. Um, let's say you had 10, 10 examples and you decide to automate seven, seven out of 10, 70% automated coverage. Okay. Yeah. Based on known behavior. That's the way that you can kind of quantify it. Right now, the presupposition there is that you fully mapped it out and there's no thing that is missing in your examples, you know, but. Anywho, again, that's why this is a hard problem. You can you can kind of judge, but yeah, and I've had I've had VPs ask me this. I'm just like, bro, you're asking <laughs> something impossible, you know. Yeah, and, and the closest answer to that, the, the, what you just proposed, it's not something that only depends on the tester. 
it's mm-hmm. it's related to how the team, the whole team is working, right? Exactly. And if the whole team is not working on that process, you can't do that. So yeah, it's like and you mentioned uh there are 10 examples. How good are those examples? All mm-hmm. the features have enough examples to consider that like uh this is a hundred percent. Because otherwise it's like measuring, okay, we have the 70% of something that we don't know if it's enough or yeah. or if it's if it doesn't make sense to have it as a goal, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so I already asked about what you think uh, of using a tool like SonarCure for mm-hmm. your test automation, do, do you typically use uh, a linter or, or? So I will, if I'm automating some sort of unit test or something, absolutely, I'm going to be using you know, some sort of co-coverage. You know, if, if it's something like SonarCube, if it's something like, you know, in Python coverage, PY, just something there to have it, you know, and then include that with, with CI. It's like you build, you test, you do your static analysis. Um, linters, Uh, yeah, I use them from time to time. Um, I'm not like super gung ho about it. It's more of, okay, I'm working in this IDE and it just slaps that on and it points out the things to me. Cool. Right. <laughs> That's how I use linters. Okay. Um, but then again, I'm also very, very picky in how I style and write my code as well. So I, I haven't found that I've needed linters as much as I think some other people have needed them. Um, but nevertheless, they're still useful because it's like, you know, it's, especially when I'm using a language I'm less familiar with. Like if I have to drop into JavaScript or something, it's like, oh, this this thing pointed it out to me. Nice, okay, I'll fix it. Now I remember for the future. Yeah, especially, I think they are very useful to to continue improving your skills at the mm-hmm. company, right? Uh, because in in my experience, for example, I, I only know how to program in Ruby for just oh, okay. you know? Mm-hmm. Also for, for Scala, because I, I used to, to work with Gatling, So I had, oh, yeah. I had to learn some Scala just to to work with Gatling, but I don't I cannot program a system with with Scala. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, so having these type of tools and also an IDE that mm-hmm. uh, help you, helps you with some some yes. basic stuff. Also, it's a way to continue acquiring some good practices. Oh yeah. Or they call oh like, yeah right and right. I mean, you mentioned like uh, Ruby and Scala. I had this this similar kind of thing happen uh, with C Sharp.net because I, in my previous two roles, I was basically doing C Sharp all day, every day. But before that, I hadn't really done .NET development. Historically, I had known Java, and Java is very similar to C Sharp, but there's these differences. And so when I when I first started doing C Sharp day to day, I was like, okay, let me fumble around, figure this out. And Visual Studio is like, oh, you should try this. Oh, don't do it like that. Do it like this. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. And I learn as I go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, pair reviewing with someone else with oh, yeah. more experience or, or, or more experience or not, like with, with another uh, programmer or another test automator. I think this is another excellent way of continue learning mm-hmm. and improving your skills. Excellent. I can't, I can't imagine developing any code, product code, test code, whatever without code review yeah exactly. every single line every every change should go through a code review i i've talked with teams where i've i've asked them like hey what do you think is a the the appropriate percentage of changes or pull requests that you make to undergo code review 
And I've had say I've had teams say, oh, I mean, I think twenty five percent would be a good target. I'm just, oh my god, face palming. <laughs> no, 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 hundred <laughs> percent. No questions asked. But yeah. hey, <laughs> yeah. it, it has a lot of advantages. It's not only making sure that your call is gets better with mm -hmm. another couple of fights. It's also sharing. Uh, knowledge across the mm -hmm. team, right? Because uh, I don't know. Tomorrow I, I'm uh, I am taking some days off, and someone mm -hmm. else needs to improve or, or or correct or review something in my call. So there there's a better chance to for them to do a better job if they yeah. re review, right? I want to rephrase what you said there. It's not just about making your code better; it's about making you better. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I have another big question, <laughs> sure. uh, which is related to the performance of the test suite, because uh, we knew, I mean, when you, we have hundreds of test cases, they are going to take longer and longer to give mm -hmm. you the results. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us like uh, different strategies to improve, to, to make the test suite run faster? <laughs> Yes. Oh, yes, I can. So there, there's macro and micro. Um, in the, the big, big picture, if you are running large end-to-end -end test suites, they will take a long time. Um, I like to call, or I like to call attention to the rule of ones. If we look at the classic test automation pyramid, love it or hate it, the layers still apply. Unit test, integration test, end-to-end -end test. And if we're talking in a web app context, unit test, API test, web UI test. That's how they kind of break down. How long does a typical unit test take? About a millisecond, order of magnitude, right? Boom, done, right? It's very fast. How long does an API test take? About one second. Make the request, you wait for the response, you check some stuff. Maybe there's a lot of data, maybe there's not. Um, Order of magnitude is one second. How long does a typical web UI test take? One minute. Why? Because you got to get WebDriver up, you got to wait for the page to load, and you click, and you log in, and you wait, and then you click on these things, and you wait. Right now, sometimes web tests might be shorter, sometimes they might be longer. But around averages, one millisecond for unit, one second for API, one minute for web UI. The rule of ones. Boom, boom, boom. So. How long does it take to run a suite of a thousand unit tests? One second. Who cares, right? How long does it take to run a suite of a thousand API tests? Okay, a couple minutes, right? Like 16 minutes or so. No, okay. How long is it going to take to run a thousand web UI tests? Hmm. Almost 17 hours. <laughs> This is if you're running serially one after the other. 17 hours. That's two thirds of the day, <laughs> <laughs> right? Oh, I mean, even if you wanted to stuff that as an overnight run, mm -mm, you're, you're bleeding into the morning. So in the macro sense, the, one of the takeaways we can get from the rule of ones is that you need to parallelize. You can't not parallelize at scale. It, it has to be done, right? Because otherwise you're literally having trade-offs of, well, maybe I run my test suite and you know, split my test suite up in five portions and run a different subset every night of the week. And that's not acceptable. Um, <clears throat> So parallelization is absolutely necessary. Uh, 
And the larger your suite, the higher scale you need of parallel testing. How do you do that? Within your code, you have to make sure that every single test case is truly independent, right? That means that it's not colliding on any shared data. That means that um, it can run by itself apart from any other test cases. You don't need to have one test case run first to set up something for the second one. Oh my gosh, how many times have I seen this? Oops, sorry. Oh my gosh, how many times have I seen this problem? <laughs> <laughs> you can edit that out. Uh, yeah. How many times have I seen this problem? It's painful. Um, things like don't use global variables. Oh my goodness. Um, so many times I've seen people have like, you know, in Java or, or C sharp, right? Static variables that are not constant, that they, they, one test will change and store data. As soon as you run in parallel, that collides right there. It's not even like in the application under test. That is a, a programming data collision. Like, oh my gosh, that that prevents you from effectively running parallel tests. Mm -hmm. That's why you use dependency injection instead of global variables every time, right? So you have those issues to resolve. But then there's how do you how do you build the infrastructure to scale as well? Because okay, on my local machine, uh, you can you can run one parallel thread per processing core, roughly. You got a four core machine, you can run up to four tests. And in fact, I found it's more like three because there's other crap going on on your machine, <laughs> right? And it's like, okay, so I could run three tests on my machine in parallel and that's cool. And that'll cut it down significantly. But if you're talking like you have 2000 tests and you want to run this in a somewhat continuous way, you know, we, we need like three ain't going to cut it. We need like 30, 50, 100 in parallel. How do we do this? It's not about scale up, it's about scale out. So you need tools like Selenium Grid, right? That you can set up to scale out. You know, you can distribute your, you know, well, for, for web app testing, you, know, you distribute your web driver sessions so that you can do something like 20 in parallel. Um, what I found is that like in my previous company, we did between 50 and 100 times parallel with our own in-house Selenium Grid. Everything was in Azure cloud. So um, we didn't have any latencies or anything, which is really nice. If you use cloud-based providers like the ones I mentioned before, um, uh, typically you're going to have a slowdown unless you're doing something like, like Apple Tools, ultra-fast cloud is a bit different, so you don't get the slowdown. But your traditional ones, you do get a slowdown of like two to four times, which is, ooh, and you pay a lot for that. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. um, not trying to throw shade, just being being real about it. Like, because I've used them all, and it's like, yeah, that's, that's what happens. If you build your own Selenium grid, you can have the opportunity of tuning for, for faster speed, um, which, you know, we, in my previous company, because it was all in Azure Cloud, the same region and everything, we did not have any slowdown between running locally versus running in, in that grid. Um, but then you can, yeah, you can, you can scale up to get these large numbers of parallel tests. And if your test code is developed properly, then you can, you know, all the tests are independent. You spread them out on however many sessions you want. 3, 30, 100, <laughs> and it just goes and it comes back and it's great. Um, that's like necessity. Like you need to engineer that type of solution if you're, if you're gonna keep up. Um, we were able to run uh, about a thousand tests in a 15 minute window wow. at, at okay. my previous company. And that was a 50, 50 times parallel with Selenium Grid. What we would do is every time there was a code change, with the the application code it would go through unit testing it would then get deployed to our test environment and then we would kick off our um what we call the continuous tests 
And that was a set of a thousand and it would complete in 15 minutes, start to finish. And that included um, powering on the VMs that ran Selenium Grid, waiting for that to get ready, hitting it with the battery of tests, shutting it down, publishing reports, like like full like setup teardown for for the test suite. The test suite itself, just the execution of the test was about eight to ten minutes. How many parallel. in parallel? You said fifty tests in parallel. 50. A total of about a thousand tests because they will run in eight to ten minutes. That probably brought some other uh, advantages to the test, which is you are testing for performance at, at the same time. Oh, right. oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! Absolutely right, because it was in effect a de facto load test because yeah. of the sheer amount of of weight we were putting on the system. I mean, I was told I had developers questioning, "Why are we running tests at such high scale? We've never hit that load in production." And I had to tell people, I'm not trying to make it a load test. That's not the goal here. The, the goal is get as much functional testing done as possible. And by the way, we're, we're getting a load test. So yeah, I put on a daily basis, my team and I pushed more load than had ever been seen in production. Um, and we found performance issues. Um, for a while, I thought that uh, we, we were seeing the app choke and basically freeze. Like at, at like three to four minute intervals, it would just everything freeze, You'd see this wall of red in our tests and then two minutes later it would recover. And we're like, what the heck? And I thought it was like, there was something poorly tuned in our Selenium grid, something poorly set up in our test infrastructure. And it turned out, no, 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 <laughs> the app couldn't keep up. We uncovered performance issues at scale in the application because of the sheer magnitude of testing we were pushing. And when they fixed it, it, it just flew beautifully. I'm like, this is amazing. <laughs> True story. I want to stress that what important it is to first think that there is a problem in the test, right? Mm -hmm. this, is, this is always how to be your first thought. It's like, oh, probably there is a, a problem with the test. Research that, and if you can't find a problem there, maybe there is a problem in the system, right? Yeah, yeah. Because you don't want to be the boy who cried wolf. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Right. Man, this is uh, amazing. I learned a lot talking with you. Cool. Um, I want to also ask you another question. Um, mm -hmm. If you had to recommend a book, uh, which one would you choose? Specifically on testing and automation or any book at all? Whatever you want to share. Okay. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give two books, one that exists and one does, that does not yet. Okay. I'm writing a book on software testing. Oh, <laughs> nice. Hopefully it'll come out in like a year or two because I'm slow to write. Um, it'll be with Manning Publications. The working title is The Way to Test Software, um, where I'll be teaching how to do all the things we talked about today. But in general, if there's one book that I recommend to people who, who want to improve themselves at whatever they're doing, whether it's testing and automation, whether they want to be managers, whether they want to be more effective in their in their families or in the communities that they're a part of, uh, I recommend um, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It is an excellent book and it has helped me and has helped many other people I know. Excellent. From Kobe, I will share the... the... Oh, yes. You know the author. You know who. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Uh, is there anything else you would like to, to share to invite the audience to reach out in social media or something else? Sure, sure. So I always love meeting new people. Um, I love it when people slide into my DMs. That's how we met. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, you're a girl, Automation Panda. 
You want to chat? Sure, why not? <laughs> so the, the best ways to reach out to me would be Twitter, at Automation Panda. Um, my blog, automationpanda.com. Wow, I see a trend. <laughs> um, you can also try to find me on LinkedIn, but there's a lot of Andrew Knights in the world, so that might be a little difficult. Um, but yeah, I, I love meeting with people. I love chatting. Um, people, people send me questions about stuff all the time. I do my best to keep up and answer. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much, Andy. Uh, I really appreciate your, your time and your experience. Well, um, thank you for inviting me. This was fun. Have a nice day. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. I hope your sense for quality got better after this conversation. Thank you so much for listening and please subscribe to Quality Sense Podcast. Tell your friends, your family, your colleagues or whoever you think can benefit from listening to it. I hope to see you soon. Adios amigos.